I'm glad that I'm joined today by T.Y. Chang, who is TYT's climate change investigative reporter. Thanks uh, for joining us. It's a really um, it's an exciting time uh, for people who cover this stuff because all of these choices are being made by by Joe Biden and his team as to who will be the nominees for his cabinet posts. And, and I want to take a look at some that, you know, that fall under the umbrella that you cover specifically. And then maybe we'll flirt with some of the others later on of about which neither of us necessarily have expertise, but it's fun to talk about. But let's talk a little bit about the environment. Let's talk about the climate. Let's talk about energy uh, and some of the names you want to talk about, Tiwa. Well, I think uh, Joe Biden has basically got a mixed bag here. And it's uh, it almost seems as if he's trying to please a lot of people who supported him. In one case, please those who did not support him. You have to keep in mind Joe Biden's goals are stated to decarbonize the electric grid by 2035, which is, you know, pretty ambitious and really unique for a presidential candidate, and uh, promote electric vehicles and restrict oil development on federal land, exact opposite of what Donald Trump did. Now, he's picked so far a, uh, or nominated so far a very diverse cabinet. Uh, and the, as I said, he's trying to, you get the sense he's trying to definitely please those who supported him in part of this. Now, for it's been reported this week that uh, he's going to nominate uh, former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm to be the Secretary of the Department of Energy. Now, she knows the auto industry, which could come be very helpful for, for the climate change. And uh, now DOE normally focuses on nuclear weapons, but they also, during the Obama administration, did fund a lot of research that subsequently help develop and make more efficient renewable energy technology. So that's an important position. And because she's connected to the auto industry, she, you know, the big three focused in Detroit, she knows them well. She may be able to deal with them in terms of transitioning to having the uh, all electric vehicles by 2035 or, or later. Now for White House climate coordinator uh, to coordinate environmental efforts within the United States, it's reported that he's going to pick Gina McCarthy, the former head of the EPA under Obama, and now the president of the NRDC. That's the Natural Resource Development uh, Council. Now, that's one of the biggest environmental organizations in the country. And while she was president, NRDC sued the Trump administration 100 times on issues ranging from emission standards to uh, protecting some endangered species. So she's been praised by a lot of progressive environmentalists, including the Sunrise uh, Movement. Now, he's already uh, mentioned and officially uh, picked the White House uh, presidential climate envoy, uh, John Kerry, former senator and former secretary of state John Kerry, who helped write the Paris Climate Accord. Now, between the two of them, between uh, the White House climate coordinator, if it is, in fact, uh, Gina McCarthy and John Kerry, they will together be the climate czar one domestically and one uh, dealing with foreign governments. Uh, we don't know who he's going to pick for the uh, EPA, but one good thing came out of that, which was surprising, that for a long time, Mary Nichols, who heads essentially California's version of the EPA, uh, he, she was almost certain to be, everyone said, oh, she's going to be the choice for the EPA. But 70 environmental organizations, many of them environmental organizations of color, opposed uh, her saying that, while she was heading California's efforts, she in, embarked on what they called environmental racism. In particular, what it was was there's something called cap and trade, where corporations could actually purchase the right to pollute 
And these are environmental groups said when they did that, it ended up uh, infecting communities of color more often than anywhere else. And uh, Biden backed off of his favorite. And those are some good things. So we may have to head the APA some last minute possible candidates who were not in consideration before. Michael Regan, a senior North Carolina environmental official who's African-American. Richard Ravise, a New York University law professor who's originally from Argentina, where his ethnicity is. And so they may, in fact, be, and they are considered to be more, uh, considered to be very progressive environmentalists. Now that's a, the plus side for us. There's a negative side to all this, and I'll, I'll go through this quicker. And that's uh, the choice of Tom Vilsack, uh, nominating him. He's the former Iowa governor, and he did support uh, Joe Biden uh, during the Iowa caucuses and stuff. And he, under President Obama, he was the Secretary of Agriculture. But he has very close ties to big agriculture. That's huge business in the U.S. And January 2017, right after Trump took office, uh, Tom Vilsack became the head of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. In other words, he, he, during this critical period of climate change, where livestock contributes anywhere from 20, 20 to 25% of greenhouse gases globally, uh, we will have a secretary of agriculture, if he's approved, who basically headed the dairy industry. It almost seems like an obvious conflict of interest. Now, the other parts were this were the possibility for secretary of interior for Tom Udall, and he's up against Deb Halen, Representative, Tom, uh, Representative Deb Halen. Both of them are from New Mexico. And, uh, and also for White House liaison, he's proposing uh, Representative Cedric Richmond from Louisiana. Now, I did a story on on this in the last couple of weeks, most recently Friday, where both Udall, Senator Udall and uh, Representative Richmond have proposed bills that will charge fossil fuel companies more uh, to be able to use federal land. Uh, and uh, that sounds like a good thing. That sounds like it makes a lot of sense. The only problem is so, some progressive environmentalists and some members, Democratic uh, uh, staffers on, on the Hill say this could perpetuate the fossil fuel industry. And it's what the fossil fuel industry wants. They want to be able to do that. If you don't have a time limit, that's what will happen. So you have these um, Biden-esque picks. And when I say Biden-esque, people have been around for a very long time. You're talking about uh, uh, John Kerry. You're talking about Jen Granholm. And I should uh, say that Jen Granholm is a former colleague and friend, so I'm not going to uh, editorialize on Jen Granholm. But but then you have Gina McCarthy. And these are names that have been around for quite a while. And you don't have Mary Nichols, who's somebody who may be new to a lot of people. Uh, do you think there's a problem, T.Y., in not bringing in new energy, literally and figuratively, into the administration uh, when you're Joe Biden? And or, or is this just to be expected and, and doesn't need to be criticized because of what it is, because it could be OK? I think that's a point, but I think it's a minor point. I think what's really more important, I mean, it'd be good to have young progressive people there. And I think that's important. But I think also what's more important is the, the policies these individuals will bring. Uh, there's no doubt that Gina McCarthy will be a very strong environmentalist. I think that's something that everyone will agree on, and she's going to be the climate coordinator domestically. On the other hand, Tom Vilsack is probably going to be very supportive of the big agriculture business. So it's more to me, what will they do? What's their record? What are they going to do in terms of the climate? We have one person in Gina McCarthy, very, very positive for the climate, and one person, Tom Vilsack, probably not very good. 
Uh, yeah, and, and I see what you're saying. When you look at Tom Vilsack, he's another one of those who's really been around for quite a while. And and a lot of you know the farmers that I've spoken to on the campaign trail have said that they need to straighten things out just about farming more than they care about any other issue, whether it has to do with tariffs, whether it has to do with, with subsidies, which they don't want. They just want to farm the land or control of big agriculture. So when I speak to farmers, they're not talking so much about climate. I know from afar, I, I think about that. And clearly you do in your everyday work, and Vilsack does not. Um, so the Secretary of Agriculture, again, not through your lens, but in general, is he there to do both or she to, to, to look at uh, what farm, what's ailing farmers or is ailing the, what's ailing the climate the most important part of their job now? Well, in the long run, it's really what's ailing the climate that's going to be the most important thing for all of us, especially our children and grandchildren. I mean, we're facing a climate crisis. Remember, 2,600 scientists said uh, for the UN IPCC, the governmental uh, panel on climate change, we're reaching a crisis situation. And those scientists have said it's speeding up. The global warming is speeding up faster than even they predicted. So I think that the climate change is the more important issue. But obviously, for the farmers, it's a, it's an important issue as well. It's not to, to say it's not important. It's just I think the climate situation is a climate crisis that is the critical thing that we have to address. And at least Biden is trying to address that. And I think that um, we need, as, as progressives need, to push him to make sure that, yes, whomever you choose, if you're comfortable with them, that's fine, as long as they get the job done, because there's no more time to waste. The wildfires, the hurricanes, the et cetera, the droughts, they're all pointing to, there's no more time to waste. It's now or never. Do you think progressives on balance, have a good reason to either be pleasantly surprised or actually even enthused about the, the nominees for these positions that a president who was not their first choice initially, that, that they should be happy about what they're seeing pleasantly surprised you are? I think it's a mixed bag. I think they can be happy about Gina McCarthy and they can be unhappy about Tom Vilsack. I think it's, uh, and it's just to be seen, what's yet to be seen is how much will Joe Biden be able to accomplish of those goals he's talked about? One thing I do like to always say is that, you know, uh, the Green New Deal, to me, in checking is the $16 trillion is what we really are going to need. And this $1.7 trillion is a good start, but it's not going to be enough. On the other hand, though, Donald Trump was negative $16 trillion in terms of the climate my opinion. And that's part of it, too. It's like whatever is there is going to be better from a progressive standpoint, but will it be enough? And of course, time will tell. And this president never promised that he would be the progressive uh, dream, but he certainly is listening to them. And we can see it in some of his cabinet picks. Tiwa, thanks for being on the conversation. Thanks, Michael. Happy holidays, everyone. I'm joined today by two Columbia University students. I'm going to introduce now William Morris and Rebecca Roskell, and they're going to tell us a little bit about what brought them together and what brings them to TYT, because it's it's a movement, it's uh, it's a protest, and and it's also a series of demands at the same time, but it's rooted in, uh, in kind of a, a, a real broad community, and we'll hear a little bit more about that later on. So William, tell me a little bit about how it started and what it is. Great. Yes. Yeah, so thank you so much for having us on today. Um, so right now, there are more than 3,000 students at Columbia University who are supporting a tuition strike. And what this tuition strike demands is a series of demands. The first is a reduction in the cost of attendance during the pandemic by 10 percent. 
and also some demands from other student groups on campus for divestment from fossil fuels, divestments from companies that enable apartheid in Palestine, and also for Columbia to address its role in institutional racism in Harlem and among black students at the school. And so in order to understand this movement and why there are 3,000 students who support this radical action, you have to understand that Columbia has repeatedly and consistently ignored the demands and needs of students throughout the entire year. This comes from different student movements with thousands of supporters who support these uh, demands through things like hunger strikes and through an election um, in which students voted to have the university divest from companies enabling apartheid in Palestine. Um, and all of these different student groups who are, we are partnering with for our demands have either met with the university and been ignored or actually just been ignored altogether. And so you have this layer of student groups, but on top of this, and probably the catalyst for all of our demands is the pandemic. And this is what is making people especially frustrated is that in the spring, as Columbia transitioned to Zoom classes, more than 8,000 students supported the university moving to a lower cost of attendance during the pandemic. And Columbia ignored these students. And then throughout the summer, we saw other schools like Georgetown, Princeton, and William, they all reduced the cost of attendance during the pandemic by 10 to 15%. And Columbia stood by and did nothing. And perhaps the biggest slap in the face is that while students are struggling, while faculty are making sacrifices, Columbia's endowment has grown by more than $310 million this year. And Columbia's president, Lee Bollinger, has a $4.6 million salary. And unlike other college presidents, he's refused to take a pay cut during the pandemic. As far as reducing the, the tuition, if Columbia came back and said, absolutely, we're going to reduce the tuition, would the strike end or would the strike continue? And I ask that because at a certain point, is it good to, I mean, it's never good to pay because paying sucks, but it, 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 is, is it good to uh, pay the tuition and then once you're paying tuition, say that, hey, I have a stake in this game. I went to college uh, at a you know, very, very long time ago, it turns out. But uh, it was apartheid was going on in South Africa and, and, and people were building tents and staying on there and asking the University of Virginia, where I went to school, to pull money out of, uh, out of South Africa. It did work. Right. But we were still paying tuition, albeit a lot less than you pay at Columbia. Tell me that, though. Is that going to be enough at least to then give you a stake in the game? Um, and so here's the thing is that once Columbia meets our demands, um, we're willing to go off strike. But the thing is that all of our demands are related and it's not even really possible to meet this kind of structural demand in the cost of attendance without addressing these other areas. And so the way that we see this is that the reason that Columbia charges such a high rate is specifically because of its projects in Harlem and because of its investments. For example, we're not asking Columbia to materialize this money out of thin air. What we're asking Columbia to do is instead of investing $6.3 billion in a new campus in Harlem that's displacing thousands of residents, we're asking Columbia to invest this money in its faculty and students. Because what we understand is that without the faculty and students that make up the university, this new campus and the new buildings are a bunch of empty buildings. All right. So, uh, Rebecca, let's move on to you. Um, uh, you're in Seattle. You're part of this. Um, tell me a little bit about now where things stand and and how this is gaining traction, where it goes from here. Yeah. So 
At this point, our movement has actually spread beyond just students, and we have support among alumni and among faculty and staff, and even elected officials have endorsed us. Um, we've also been reached out to by student groups from all over the world who have been saying that they want to do something similar. Actually, this week we're planning to hold our first international town hall, and people have signed up from over 70 schools across eight countries. It's really clear to us that these issues that we're calling out extend far beyond Columbia. Student debt is defining the kinds of lives that people in our generation are able to lead. And of course, it's even harder to accept the reality of rising tuition when it's being put toward racist policing, gentrification, investment in climate destruction, and companies that help maintain Israeli apartheid in Palestine. So. This is why we've made the demands of our tuition strike for Columbia to address all of these issues, like Willem said. And we think that if we're successful, the tuition strike would be just one in a wave of strikes that are pushing back on the rising cost of college everywhere. And that's building pressure behind the national movement for student debt cancellation. And that's organizing students so that they can use this lever of power to bring about actual change on all these issues at institutions like Columbia that are perpetuating them. Is there any, uh, and, and I want to ask you about the, the policing, because that jumped out at me um, because we're think, talking about a, a university, but college police forces are an issue uh, around the country now. Tell me a little bit about what your group and, and the associated others are, uh, are addressing when it comes to policing, campus policing. Yeah, and so, again, all of our demands are tied together. And this campus in Manhattanville, the $6.3 billion campus, the way that Columbia is making this campus is that they have worked with the New York City Police Department to arrest citizens around this campus. For example, in 2010, once Columbia used eminent domain to secure this property that displaced thousands of residents, they started a massive four-year multi-million dollar surveillance operation working with the New York City Police Department. And at the conclusion of this mass surveillance project, which they targeted the citizens living in public housing near the area, the New York City Police Department arrested 104 citizens in the same day. And this is unacceptable to us. And this is, again, how our demands are tied together, because you have Columbia spending money on police, spending money on these new campuses in order to, like, expand their real estate empire instead of focusing on the citizens. So once again, we're asking Columbia not to invest in police, but to invest in students and faculty, because that's what makes a university a university. Uh, Rebecca, I want to ask you, uh, what kind of opposition are, are you facing? And I'm not asking from the usual suspects. Are there student groups that are vocally opposed to this movement, uh, either parts of it or all of it, uh, that are mobilized themselves? Yeah, well, the university has been pretty effective in using this narrative of budgetary crisis. Um, and this has been, to all of our confusion, because... Like Willem said, the endowment grew by 300 million last year and tuition costs have been rising across most schools and faculty have taken a hiring freeze, a salary freeze and a cut to benefits. So it seems to us like it's the problem isn't that the university has a really tight budget, like some of the groups that are opposing us would say, right. but 
it's actually the same kind of austerity logic that we see so many institutions in the U.S. relying on that says that a crisis actually just means feeding off of the most vulnerable people so that the trustees or the investors at the top don't need to make any compromises. How's it looking? You know, I mean, from where you're sitting, how are you optimistic that you're going to have an impact? At least they're going to come to the table and there may be a compromise. We'll start with you, Will. Yeah, we're very optimistic. And like I said before, the largest tuition strike before us was 200 students. We have 3,000 students already supporting the movement, and we have six more weeks to grow our demands. We are confident that not only are we going to have an impact, that we are going to be able to win all of our demands. Yeah, like Willen said, I absolutely think that we're at a tipping point right now. Um, and people are asking, you know, if something isn't going to change now, when all of these issues have been so laid bare by the pandemic, then when will it? And I have to ask this one more question. We'll be really quick. What if they call your bluff? Uh, Willem, what if they say, you know what? Sorry, uh, tuition strike, goodbye. Uh, we're going to get someone else to fill your roster spot. Um, we wouldn't be that surprised if Columbia started to ignore its students, but we understand that we have the power to make Columbia address us, and we are going to hopefully move into other areas if we're unsuccessful, but we are going to stop until our demands are met. Uh, you're both uh, you're both very smart, and if it doesn't work out at Columbia, we'd love to have you at the University of Virginia, by the way. I'll just put that out there. It's a great school. Um, uh, th th this, this is Will Morris. This is Rebecca Roskell. They're both Columbia students, and they are both fighting for real change uh, and trying to change the way universities operate, specifically Columbia, and get them to divest from places that these students believe that they shouldn't, also to try and lower their tuition. The town hall is this Thursday. Willem, Rebecca, thanks so much for being on the Young Turks. Thank, Thank you, you for so having much. us.